Today is our lucky day. Today, we're going to share in the excitement of our founders as they stepped aboard an important bobsled ride that will relentlessly plunge them into revolution. Today, in episode number five, we're going to discuss the first half of the series from tea to gunpowder. And today, be mostly tea. Next time, be mostly gunpowder. But back to today, today, I have in mind three topics, three key questions that I'd like to answer in our discussion today. First, why did England enact the Tea Act in the first place? Second, why did the Tea Party happen in Boston rather than, say, Philadelphia? Third, why did the impact of the Tea Party turn out to be one that had a positive impact for the colonies rather than the opposite? We need to begin, though, with British tea policy as of 1770, and we need to begin with Lord North. Lord Frederick North was a new prime minister for England. He would be a very successful one compared to certainly the ones that preceded him because he would last for 12 years. Looking at Lord North himself, which is a good place to start, he had some very unique personal traits that greatly, greatly boosted his rise to power. He possessed great charm, perseverance, and industry. And though he lacked eloquence, he did display exceptional skill in small meetings and in resolving minor matters. He was a man of, quote, infinite wit and pleasantry. He played a very important role in this story about the coming of the American Revolution because it was Lord North who, perhaps agitating to become prime minister, ran on sort of a ticket, if you will, of resolving the American crisis by eliminating all the Townsend duties except for one, the one on tea. And it worked very effectively. When he was selected and he implemented those changes, it did have the effect of pacifying the Americans. One reason why the British were content with this, that the Americans never understood very early in the game, was because he had um, found that the tea duties alone were sufficient to fund all of the royal positions that he wanted to fund in the colonies. And that was kind of his goal. He wanted to be in a position to fund these folks so that they would be beholden to him and not to the colonists for the decisions that were made uh, by judges and by others. There would be all king would be able to determine all of these. The Americans did not realize that. They assumed that if they just could shut off their consumption of English tea, then he would not have enough money to make this work. So there was a period of two or three years where each one perhaps wanted to believe what they wanted to believe, and the king was content. Back to Lord North. He had some uh, unique charm, as I mentioned to you before, but there were some other factors that should be known about him. His seat that he was elected to was 
a classic rotten borough with about two dozen voters who reelected him, quote, after being plied with punch and cheese and who were then rewarded with a haunch of venison. So that was kind of a eye-opener for me into the methods of, of parliamentary elections in those days. North also had some unusual physical traits. One observer described him as, quote, average height, obese, awkward, and disheveled. And that same source also noted that he had, quote, bulging eyes that rolled about to no purpose, and that he often slurred his words, his tongue being too large for his mouth. So Lord North was a very effective minister. He quelled the American crisis. He stood up to uh, France and Spain in a matter over the Falklands uh, early in the 1770s. And so he really was viewed as a very firm and effective individual. The question becomes, why did he stir up the waters? Possibly he thought they were so calm, but also possibly he thought that by passing the Tea Act, he might actually get a positive response for the Americans. Because the Tea Act was his effort to pacify an important lobbying group in Parliament who had serious problems financially and that would be the British East India Tea Company. They had built up tremendous surpluses. It does appear that Lord North thought he could kill two birds with one stone. He would give that company a monopoly on all tea sold to uh, the colonies, and the, the expectation was that would even further lower the, tice, the price of tea and make it all that much more palatable. Unbeknownst to the king and his ministry in London, more and more Americans were growing uneasy over their current position in the British Empire. Unbeknownst to the ministry, they were gradually realizing that the current tea duties enabled the king to appoint virtually all key colonial officials and to control them by paying their salaries. And also unbeknownst to the ministry, it would take very little for the colonies to explode into a blaze and force them soon to be hopping onto the great bobsled ride to revolution. That was unbeknownst to the ministry, but also likely to the Americans themselves. So Parliament passed this Tea Act in May of 1773, and there were conflicting opinions thereafter about what its text actually said before it was actually published in the local newspapers. The opinions varied. Some people thought that actually it had eliminated the Townsend duty on tax and just consisted of the monopoly. So people were uncertain of exactly what its nature was, and it's not until early September that formal copies of the Tea Act were published in the newspapers of the port communities in the colonies. 
And also in late part of that month, in late September, the urgency for action became clear because word also seeped into the colonies that the British tea ships were on their way, had been authorized, and had taken off as early as August and would likely arrive in the colonies by early December. So that put a situation of urgency in the minds of many. It may surprise you, but the opposition to all of this began in Philadelphia at a public meeting on October 16th. There the speakers reviewed with those assembled in the audience the nature and of the threat, and they also discussed ideas for how to prevent it. The leaders of the meeting were the, some of the most prominent men in the colonies, and they included John Dickinson, Benjamin Rush, and Thomas Mifflin. And there was a considerable crowd there. We don't really know what considerable meant in those days. The October 16th meeting is one worthy of special study, I think, because A, it was a turning point, B, it was a very effective meeting. Besides explaining the law to everybody and what its features would be, they passed resolutions that criticized the law and attacked the law for undermining, quote, undermining local assemblies. So the main reason for opposition was paying these salaries meant that the assemblies would have no role and reduce their role, and that was very important to them. This resolution passed. And they also enacted resolutions to suggest tools for what needed to be done. In their mind, as was explained to them, the key to this entire venture was to have the tea agents be forced to resign because if a shipment of tea arrived and the tea agent was unavailable and could not purchase the tea or take action in any way, then within 20 days it would be forced to have its whatever was on the ship sold as contraband. On the other hand, if the tea agent got there in time and provided the money, the king basically got his duties that early. The portion of all the taxes, the tea that was due, he would pay duties and very soon that money would go very quickly to the king's coffers for him to use for the payment of local and colonial salaries. So they wanted to nip this in the bud and the tea agent was the person that they recommended going after. One of the means they suggested was introducing the tea agents throughout the colonies to what they called, quote, committees for tarring and feathering. So they sent this all out to all of the other port cities, and they passed resolutions. They sent the language of their resolutions, and they had printed copies available almost instantly. And surprisingly, to avoid any kind of two-week delay or anything like that of getting information out, they sent it by horseback, like Paul Revere style, to make sure that this information got immediately to their sibling port cities. This was sort of like a breakthrough in technology for them.
The other thing that's important about this meeting, this mass meeting, was its effectiveness. Because it would turn out that all the other siblings got the information and they got the suggestions of what to do about it and how it could go. And by December 2nd, three of the four colonies found ways to obtain the resignations of tea agents so that none of the tea could be unloaded and the king would be without his tea duties. The one exception was Boston. In Boston, they were struggling to put enough pressure on the tea agents. So let me acknowledge right now that uh, the source of this information about Philadelphia and the role it played organizing the resistance to the Tea Act and all the detail that we have about it came from Mary Beth Norton in her wonderful book, 1774, The Long Year of Revolution. If you would like to know more about this period, I would suggest that you take a look at uh, the early pages of her book, about the first 20 or so pages, which go into a lot of detail about this, where she seems to have organized this from several other sources. An excellent place to look. The folks in Boston were fully aware of the progress that their siblings had made as early as December 2nd. This is in large part due to the existence of this innovative Pony Express style of communication. However, they were also aware that their own situation was going to be more complicated. They would need to find some creative solutions because as early as November 28th, there already was a ship in Boston Harbor, a tea ship was there, and this surprised them. And indeed, they right away had mass meetings trying to figure out how they were going to handle this. They still resorted to the notion, perhaps we can get the tea agent to resign, and they did spend quite a bit of effort doing that. They also had a mass meeting on December 6th, and while they were having that, it was 5,000 people showed up. There was a great deal of concern about it. While they had that meeting, the tea agent in question took his opportunity to escape and headed for Castle Island in the middle of Boston Harbor, where he would be immune to any pressures that could be applied to him uh, to get him to resign. This put the Bostonians in uncharted waters they were very determined that they would not be the only ones that had failed to get tea consignees to resign. So they really had to put their heads together. And one of the options they pursued was trying to get the, um, the shipmaster of the tea ship himself to leave, to leave without uh, paying the duties. This was crucial, and they knew as soon as anything was unloaded, the duties would be paid, and the king would have the money that he needed. So they were aware of this dilemma, and they tried to get the permission from Thomas Hutchinson, the governor, to allow that ship to leave without being fired upon, because the shipmaster for sure wanted to leave. However, he refused. 
And upon that refusal, they realized they had certainly launched into very uncharted waters and that they were wondering how they could possibly accomplish their objective under these circumstances. And indeed, if we're looking for a reason for why the Tea Party happened and why it happened in Boston, I think we can see that the reason that it did happen was because of the refusal of Governor Thomas Hutchinson to allow that ship to leave, even though it wanted to. And so that left a town meeting still remaining, where once again, everybody put their heads together, and finally they came up in secret with a method for addressing this problem. And the person who suggested it and the person whose idea they endorsed finally was a Dr. Thomas Young. Thomas Young is a person that does not get much attention, and yet his name will keep popping up. And I thought we should maybe know a bit more about him. Thomas Young, Dr. Thomas Young, first came to my attention when I was working on beginning the world over again and noticed that this individual was among the few that had influence in the shaping of two different constitutions. One was Pennsylvania and the other was Vermont. He also played a role in the Boston Tea Party, as we will see. But that piqued my attention to see the significant role that he played, and yet he's very little is known about him or is said about him. So this alone piqued my interest, and I decided to see what else we could know about this man. In essence, uh, there's very little. One historian, David Hawk, once declared that Young was, quote, unquestionably the most unwritten about man of distinction of the American Revolution. That caught my attention, and I pursued it further. And I did learn the following, and this is, you can find in, in uh, Beginning the World Over Again. Thomas was born very poor in mid-state New York in 1731. We know he was precocious and that he read everything that he found. He was self-educated, and by age 16, he already had a successful medical practice. Imagine that. In 1765, Thomas joined the Albany Sons of Liberty and helped that town in its protest against the Stamp Act. But then he moved to Boston and by 1772 was assisting Sam Adams as member of their Committee of Correspondence. Indeed, local tradition does credit him with initiating the notion of Committees of Correspondence both throughout the colonies and among the towns in New England. John Adams trusted him, we know, enough to make him his personal physician. He was a great speech maker, evidently. Most patriots loved his speeches, Tories hated him. On December 16, 1773, for instance, Dr. Young gave a hilarious and well-attended speech at the Old South Church. His topic was, the ill effects of British tea on the Constitution. I kind of wish I had 
been able to take that, don't you? By chance, well, maybe not, some fake Indians dumped exactly 342 casks of tea into the harbor while he was speaking and everybody was distracted. Nonetheless, the royal governor's spies did know that Young was the one who had proposed this idea, and most Tories were suspicious and angry. Soon, Thomas became the target of many Tory thugs, and he was forced to leave for Providence and eventually for Pennsylvania. So, that's what we know about Thomas Young and the Boston Tea Party. Now, perhaps, we have a good opportunity to pause and to see what we have covered and to consider the first two questions that we started this talk with. The first, you recall, had to do with why did the king pass the Tea Act in the first place, and the second, why did the Boston Boston Tea Party take place in Boston? It's a little more fuzzy on the first end, but it does appear to be a simple case that the British government simply wanted to help a very, very important client company, the British East India Tea Party, and they thought they could do that without alarming the Americans, who seemed to be more or less content with the policies that were in place. Secondly, as to why the Boston Tea Party took place in Boston, I think it's clear to me now that the other two or three colonies had already fixed their problem, had already got their tea agents to resign, and therefore there was no way the ships could come in and, uh, and unload their tea and get the money to the king. It is in Boston where they tried to do the same thing. They were defeated at every turn, desperate to come up with an answer, and finally they did. They threw all the tea into the water. So for the rest of this talk, we'll be talking about the impact of that event. And I want to divide it into two pieces. The first, a fairly immediate impact, like within the next month or so. And then secondly, the very, very important reaction that the king had. And when the king established the Intolerable Acts. And so we'll also follow the impact of the Intolerable Acts on the colonies. So that's what I have planned. Now, as to the immediate impacts, I think we're looking at the impact on three individuals that we want to focus on. One is John Adams. Two is the king himself. And three is Benjamin Franklin. Let's look at them one at a time. But let's begin with John Adams. I think, uh, without dwelling too much, it's probably good to know that his biographer, uh, McCullough did explore the whole period of time that John Adams had from, say, 1770 on to 1773. He described this as a period of ill health for him, of mood problems, and generally he seemed to be just divided in his loyalty between his own colony and the mother country and perhaps fear of what the result might bring. It's also clear that he felt that his cousin was moving a little too fast and a little too dangerously, and that if they weren't careful, they were going to be at war sooner than they would want to be. 
these may have been at the root of his concerns. But the interesting thing about the Tea Party is instead of making him more worried and more concerned, it seemed to have flipped a switch that he now felt more happy with the cause. I'm not sure I fully understand the reason for that, but it's nonetheless the case because after the Tea Party Act, instead of being angry that uh, this act of vandalism had taken place and there would be a great deal of judgment against them, it turns out that Adams's opinion, as he expressed it, was that the Tea Party was, quote, the grandest event in the history of the colonial protest movement. And then in his diary, he went on to said, say that it was, quote, an absolutely necessary and indispensable act. Of course, he was there and saw all the options and how they had worked their way through it. He also saw his cousin in a very different light, and he thought of Samuel as, quote, restrained in his passions and a cool, genteel, and agreeable leader driven by the purest of motives. This is not, this is not the John Adams of 1772. This is a different man, and it would be reflected in the rest of his life story because he will be selected at the First Continental Congress along with his cousin and with other strong men from Massachusetts to represent the colony and in the First Continental Congress. And by the end of the First Continental Congress and the beginning of the second, he will emerge as the leader and spokesperson for all those who favored independence. It would probably be, and he was a very skilled man, and it probably would have been better for the king had John not reacted to the Tea Party the way he did. And that brings up the matter of the king. He might have reacted in a measured, wise, and temperate manner, but he did not. With his ministers, he was caught up in anger and rage at the vandalism that was involved this seemed to come out of nowhere a bitterness and anger that they did not even realize was occurring in the colonies. His, it seems that at this very point he decided that he was no longer going to be gentle or wise with the colonists. His comment almost immediately was this for publication. We are not entering into a dispute between internal and external taxes, not between representation and taxation or legislation and taxation, but are we now to dispute whether we have or have not any authority at all in that country? He seemed to take this very personally and very much as a bitter challenge and he did not really let go of that. Indeed, for example, as early as September of 1774, when the colonies reacted against his intolerable acts, he wrote, the New England governments are in a state of rebellion and blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. And shortly thereafter, he commented that any effort 
to get him to repeal the intolerable acts was the unwisest idea he had ever heard of. So George found himself in a bitter mood, and certainly it lasted, and perhaps understandably, for at least a month. The problem is, although he learned about this in, say, mid-January, January, he immediately struck out at his uh, Benjamin Franklin, the one person that he knew that represented the colonists, and he struck at him in a very punitive and bitter way. In the instance of Benjamin Franklin, the ministry decided foolishly to make an example of him, to take out all their ill bile, their hatred, and all the things that were upsetting them, to take it out on one person, a scapegoat. So they invited Benjamin to an event in what's called now the cockpit, where some 20 members of the Privy Council surprised Benjamin. And presumably this was all within the intention of the king, but they surprised him by belligerently attacking him with vitriolic language, calling him a traitor, saying that he was a person who led to the Boston Tea Party, even though he had really, in reality, been the person trying most to mediate the differences between the king and the colonies. But they spared no verbiage. They attacked him with such vigor that it was hard to imagine. Indeed, many of the folks who observed it, when they reported on their own observations of the meeting, were kind of ashamed at what they had done in retrospect and pretty impressed with Franklin, as you might expect, because of the poise that he showed, the unwillingness to engage them and to just take it. That's how the meeting went. And while they probably thought they'd gotten a lot of the venom out of their system, and perhaps they did, nonetheless, Franklin concluded that he could no longer help mediate between the colonies and the mother country. He had lost all credibility based on what they had spoken to him, and he had no choice other than to give up his position as lobbyist for all the several colonies that trusted him to interact with the king and his officers. This was a much more serious problem than you might expect. Franklin did not make a big scene. He simply concluded that he best go home, but he didn't go home quickly. Before leaving, after all, he had been there for 15 years, he kind of made a goodbye tour to all the political allies that he had. One doesn't know exactly what he said, but it seems just to have reassured them 
of his interests and his personal connection. But he also took the same opportunity to meet with the intellectuals and enlightenment people such as Adam Smith, David Hume, and many others with whom he had associated over the years and to kind of say goodbye to those folks. This too, of course, had the effect of shoring up his future support and the support that these individuals would share with his country. There's many tales about very moving connections between Benjamin Franklin and the folks that he had come to know over the last 15, 16 years as lobbyists for various colonial enterprises. But perhaps the most moving, at least to me, was his connection with Joseph Priestley, the man he met with just before he left. In the instance of Priestley, I find myself imagining two older men, which they were, sitting by a fireside, and as they loved to do, taking turns reading newspaper articles to one another. Very simple, pastoral kind of vision. This is what they like to do, take turns. Priestley reported on this event, his last with Franklin, and he commented how at one point the news was so bitter, so disappointing, and the future seemed so gloomy that they used more faltering voices as they tried to read what was before them. Until the point was reached that Franklin, when reading his article, could no longer continue. Tears were seeping from his eyes. The disappointment was clear. The negative news was overwhelming. And the tears poured down. And he could no longer go on. And it's at that point that Priestley simply and lovingly concluded the passage and the reading that Franklin had intended. So it would turn out, my friends, that many of the decisions that the British would make in the wake of their first learning on January 19th that there may be problems in America, they made a lot of decisions that boomeranged back against their interests. And certainly the first was the one to antagonize and demean Benjamin Franklin and to send him home. Because it would turn out that Benjamin would come home for about a year and then his country would send him to France in 1776. He would be an incredibly popular French ambassador with the French. He would attract great crowds of interest and would be a favorite in all of Europe. And when the time was appropriate, in 1878, he would successfully negotiate a treaty with the French that would turn the American Revolution around and enable them to have a very, very good chance at independence.
And the second thing that they would do besides alienating Franklin would be to start thinking about legislation to punish Boston. And they got one of them passed on March 22nd. It was the Boston Port Act. And it was the one that closed the port of Boston and moved the government to Salem. It was a pretty strong action and not one that was particularly shocking. The second one, though, is called the Massachusetts Government Act. There were about five in total, but these were the two. In the case of the Massachusetts Government Act, they were going to take away the rights of town boards to have their meetings, and they were going to make all the advisors to the governor, who would now be a military governor, all his advisors would be sent by the king and selected by the king and not by a legislature representative of the views of two-thirds of the people. Very big deal. They knew this, they debated it, and they nonetheless passed it. These are the two acts that I think I would focus on, and we will be spending the rest of our talk describing how they affected Massachusetts, but it, that's only part of it. It's important to realize that this also impacted all the other colonies. Many of them shifted their views, and when push came to shove, they chose Boston over the king. They chose Massachusetts over the king. It was a huge turning point. So what I want to talk about first is those colonies outside of Massachusetts and outside of New England and how they responded to the intolerable acts. And one place to get a good feel for this is to look at North Carolina, which up until now had not been involved very much in the whole debates, etc., over the Stamp Act or the Townsend Act. It really had tried not to stay involved. And there was one person who would eventually turn this around, and his name is Richard Caswell. And by following what happened to Richard Caswell, I think we get a pretty good idea of what was going on in the rest of the colonies. So Richard Caswell of North Carolina was in 1773 and years earlier, pretty much the darling of the loyalists in North Carolina. They had offered him, and he had accepted nearly every position of prestige that he could have wanted. And it turns out that while he was in this pro-loyalist point of view or perspective, not much was done of an aggressive nature by North Carolina to assist the colonial cause. But what we do notice is that in December of 17. 73, right about the time of the Boston Tea Party, he asked or insisted on becoming the chairman of the Committee of Correspondence for North Carolina, communicating with the other colonists. We don't know whether he just wanted to experience it firsthand or he had already, like, made up his mind. But it's pretty clear that as the months passed and the completeness of the intolerable acts became obvious. 
he very much shifted his attitude. He sent, for the first time, he sent representatives to the First Continental Congress and responded favorably to a request in June 15th or so by Massachusetts asking him to do so. He would also send delegates to the Second Continental Congress. This is a change for North Carolina, but it would go on. He would use his personality to persuade the leader of the chief financial officer and the chief clerk to turn their documents, which they kept for the royal government, over to the new provincial government. He was clearly taking sides in all of this, and people were following. He also was a militia leader. Now, he came to my attention because he was the author in 1776 of the North Carolina Constitution. It had some very special features to it. Firstly, it disestablished the Anglican Church in North Carolina, not something the other states, southern states in particular, were very quick to do. Secondly, he allowed the vote in the legislature to be any property taxpayer, any taxpayer, regardless of whether they had a property figure. So this was a significant expansion of voting rights and something that he introduced. He also, in his first constitution, established a precedent to give the government, the state, responsibility for the educational system within its boundaries. These were very, very progressive steps, and they were things that could only be implemented if North Carolina won its independence. And he was an officer in the Army to help do that. He was involved in several battles. His story is an important one, and I think it's revealing because if somebody like he, who was like pro-loyalist for so long a period of time, if he was persuaded by the intolerable acts to take sides with Massachusetts rather than the king, that must have been the case for so, so many others as well who would make this shift. So when we look at the three most important of the intolerable acts and their effect on Massachusetts, we can probably say that the first two seemed to be not too bad. Uh, things went maybe not warmly, but not horribly either. As it would turn out, General Thomas Gage would arrive and take command uh, and become governor of Massachusetts as of March 15th. He was pretty well warmly welcomed. I mean, not enthusiastic perhaps, but no real hostility either. He was known to have an American wife and that kind of softened people's feelings about him. Um, the second thing that arrived, however, was on June 1st, he would have to begin implementing the Boston Port Act which would move the port of Boston to Salem. 
and anybody wanting to send anything to Boston would have to have it go to Salem first by ship, and then over the road, 20 miles, it would have to come to Boston, therefore raising prices of everything pretty considerably. It was thought to be you know, a, an appropriate punishment, perhaps. It's only when things came along to the third provision, the Massachusetts Government Act, which would not take effect until August 6th, that things really blew up. The moving of the port of Boston to Salem, however, was not without its consequence. No sooner did the cat leave than the mice began to play, and Samuel Adams and his followers immediately passed through the Massachusetts legislation, legislature, a circular, inviting all the other colonies to meet in Philadelphia in September of 1774 to work out a common strategy about how they were going to respond to the Massachusetts Intolerable Acts. Of course, when Thomas Gage found out about this, he immediately prorogued the legislature, dissolved it, and called for new elections. This was not a very satisfactory result because the new elections produced even more radical individuals than the one before. So what we now look at is what began to happen on August 6th because August 6th would be the time when, supposedly, all town meetings would be limited to only one per year. This was viewed by all Massachusetts people as a non-starter, and that would be the case. As I pause for a moment to consider the events we've covered so far, it seems pretty clear to me that it is on August 6th that the Wheel of Fortune turned inexorably against the British Empire. That the boomerang that they had thrown was now turning back against them. All of these events show pretty clearly that with August 6th, the imperial government of Britain had reached the point of imperial overreach. That is, the law that they were providing, the laws that they were providing, were totally unenforceable with only two to 3,000 troops. This is especially vivid in the case of town governments. We have town governments scattered all the way through the forests of New England and the seacoasts of New England they are going to have whatever town meetings they care to have, regardless of British opinion, and there's no way the British Army can prevent them from doing so. They know it. Thomas Gage knows it. Perhaps only the English king and the ministers did not know that. It would then begin to turn inexorably against them because within a fairly short period of time, the Boston Port Act, which moved the Port of Boston 
and the capital to Salem would prove to be a non-starter. Similarly, the rural people, realizing their power, would drive out all the potentially assigned mandamus counselors and let them know that they would not be successful here. They would need to resign or to leave, which is what they would have to do. We know Thomas Gage and the royal ministers had expected a warmer reception from the New England countryside. It's hard to understand why. They had given Louisburg back to the French, which resulted in all kinds of family disasters that were bitter. More importantly, the people in that region were overwhelmingly Congregationalists. They were dissenters. They did not like the Anglican Church. They were dissenters. And in the Congregationalist churches, it may surprise you to know that all the church officers were elected locally. They also hired their own clergymen and fired their own clergymen. They limited and controlled what they spoke. They always allowed certainly a fair amount of freedom, but within Congregationalist limits. What's particularly interesting as well is the same style of religious government applied to their towns. In the towns, they also elected their town officers. They determined everything, who could have a sewer, who couldn't have a sewer. This was a town government solution. This is the way they did things in New England, in Massachusetts, in Maine, and Vermont. Coming in and telling them that they were no longer going to be able to govern themselves in the way they had governed themselves since 1630s, it was very predictable this would not work, that there would be severe and caustic relationships on this. Indeed, there's very interesting observations about this made by one person who was an observer of New England, written a whole book on called The Road to Concord, and he captured the spirit of these towns He said, this is J.L. Bell in The Road to Concord. He writes, these towns, quote, were full of people who were each other's relatives, schoolmates, in-laws, marching comrades, and business partners. That society was basically a monoculture, like fields all planted with the same crop. They all had the same religion. They all had the same beliefs. And they reacted to the Massachusetts Government Act as though it were a potato blight. The North Ministry had clearly pushed them over their tipping point. From here on in, they would see any attack on their government as a simultaneous attack on their style of religious government. They could not really be separated.
And that would account, in my mind, for the overwhelming resistance that the British felt and discovered and uncovered from the rural parts of Massachusetts and Maine that would turn things around completely. So to help you understand the difficulty that Thomas Gage would face in trying to implement the Massachusetts Government Act in the depths in the forested towns of Maine and Massachusetts and elsewhere in New England, it helps to focus just a little bit on what happened on August 24th in Salem, now the state capital, the place where he resided, well, he resided in Danvers nearby, but where his government existed and was supported by a number of gunships in the port of Salem. If he couldn't enforce this decree in Salem, he surely could not enforce it anywhere else. And the answer to this query as to whether he would be able to do so happened on August 24th. On that occasion, not too far from his office in Salem, it came to his attention there was a fairly vocal meeting of the town of Salem's Committee of Correspondence, clearly an illegal meeting and one not authorized by any of the Massachusetts New Get Massachusetts Government Acts. So he knew he had to take action, and he did. He sent 120 members of the sailors, really, Marines, on a nearby ship that was in port and sent them off to carry away and arrest the five or six members of this committee of correspondence. However, by the time he had so ordered, and these men were on their way to collect these miscreants, they found 3,000 locals, members of militia, heavily armed and very angry, there to confront them and to prevent any action on their part that would involve collecting any members of the Committee of Correspondence. When confronted with this, our good general really had no choice. He was totally outnumbered, and he ordered his sailors to go back to their ship. He had been humiliated in his effort to enforce this law. They knew it, and he knew it. And it surely already weighed on his mind when that evening in Danvers, which is where he resided, uh, just the town next over from Salem, there was still another meeting of a town board. They were quite loud. They seemed to be not necessarily describing or discussing town issues, but seemed to be staying on in their committee meetings for the sole purpose of annoying him, extending their meeting. And he knew what they were thinking. He knew that they were goading him 
and that he was indeed helpless to prevent, even in Danvers, any sort of town meetings that they would choose to have. This was a wake-up call for him. And within just a few days, Thomas Gage would choose to decide wisely that he was not in a very safe place in Salem or Danvers and that he should move himself and his entourage and indeed all of the provincial government back to Boston. To General Thomas Gage in Massachusetts, the decision to move his forces from Salem back to Boston meant not only that the Boston Port Act and the removal of the capital to Salem were null and void, but also that any attempt to enforce the government Massachusetts Government Act were going to be totally ineffective. But thirdly, it persuaded him that he needed to start looking around to make sure that he had the majority of any gunpowder or any cannon that were going to be available because it became clear to him that this might happen and he needed to start making preparations. And he began doing this as early as late August, when he started checking around to see where the munitions were and who had control of them. And he started acting on all of this. And the most significant one was an arsenal on Quarry Hill in Somerville, Massachusetts. This arsenal, he understood, had already had its local militia remove its quote-unquote, share of all the gunpowder that was there. But they had left behind some for the royal government, the ones that they had purchased and, and put there. This raised for him the possibility that it might be vulnerable. It was well within the reach of the Massachusetts militia to grab the remaining portion of it, but he thought maybe he better act first, which he chose to do on September 1st. He collected a force of about 200 men to go out to that arsenal on Quarry Hill. They had to do it in daytime because at nighttime, if you tried to use lights or any kind of lighting, it could blow the whole thing up. So he had to do it in daytime. And he did find that the remaining portion was all the portion that was supposed to go to the king. And so he grabbed that. Many of the onlookers did not realize that the patriots had already removed their portion of this, and they saw this as a grab on the part of the king and royal forces. Secondly, he thought it wise to check out the cannon. There were about four cannon in Cambridge, and he sent a troop of about 20 men to grab those and to bring them back to Boston, where he could put them to good use, and militia people could not. There was an interesting conflict there in that most of the militia forces there did not want to give up the cannon. However, the man in charge was a royal appointee, and he 
had the leadership role, and so they deferred to him, and the cannon were sent back to Boston. Seems like a pretty simple story. Indeed, it seemed to Thomas Gage a very successful mission, and in fact, in, in a way, it was. However, not everything is rational. Sometimes things get out of control. And that's what seems to have happened here because rumors reported to all the people in the rural parts of Massachusetts that what had in fact happened was that the royal forces took both provisions, both the militia provisions and their own, and that there had been fire shot, six militiamen had been killed in the exchange, and there was a need for vengeance. None of that was true, but that didn't prevent about ten to 40,000 militia from all around the outskirts of Boston to begin marching on the Boston area so that they could fix the problem that had occurred as it happens only in their minds. It's hard for us sometimes to understand the fervor which guided and influenced and maybe controlled so many Americans at this point in time. It was not necessarily totally rational, but it was nonetheless there, and it played a huge role in the gunpowder situation and what was called the gunpowder alarm. The word spread on all of this. Pretty soon, it actually reached all the way to the Continental Congress in Philadelphia. But the fervor is something of special interest, I think. We have a sense of this from John Greenwood, who wrote a memoir. He had been involved and served in the entire Revolutionary War. In, in 1809, he wrote a recollection. And he recalled times like this, the powder alarm and other alarms when people from New England grabbed their guns and headed for Boston. Here's what he wrote. While I was at school, the troubles commenced. And I re recollect very well of hearing the superstitious accounts which were circulated around. People were certain a war was about to take place, for a great blazing comet had appeared and armies of soldiery had been seen fighting in the clouds overhead. And it was said that the day of judgment was at hand when the moon would turn to blood and the world would be set on fire. These were the people that marched to the sounds of the powder alarm on Quarry Hill in Somerville, Massachusetts. When they were done, about 15,000 men surrounded Boston. They surrounded the soldiers in Boston, who were only two or 3,000. And for the next many, many months, they would remain surrounded and locked into their barracks in Boston. And this would change everything. Next time, we're going to talk about the rest of the struggle over gunpowder. Thank you.